Peace be upon you. So I recently read the book, uh, Hadith Literature, Its Origin, Development, and Special Features by Muhammad Zubair Siddiqui. And this is meant to be kind of an introductory textbook for Hadith. And again, its origins, its development, and special features. And there's a number of points that he brings out in this book that, God willing, I want to uh, cite and then expand upon. And the first thing that caught my attention was this emphasis that the first four caliphs, the rightly guided khalifas, made no formal effort to preserve and compile and catalog the Hadith corpus like they did the Quran. And this is very clear in the first uh, quote. This is from uh, page 23. It's in reference to Abu Bakr. It says, he also asked Muslims not to relate traditions which might cause discord among them. And I was able to find this actual uh, reference. This is from Imam Zabi. It says, Hazrat Abu Bakr assembled the people following the death of the messenger and declared that you people attribute such narratives to Rasulullah about which you squabble. The generations coming after you will become even more entrenched in such disagreements. Therefore, it is necessary that you do not narrate anything by attributing it to Rasulullah. And then if someone inquires of you, say between us and you there is a book of Allah, it is therefore necessary that those things which the book has made permissible be allowed, halal, and those things which have been declared disallowed, haram, is prohibited. So this is the supposed narration that the uh, book is citing from uh, regarding that Abu Bakr was telling his people not to relate traditions that's going to cause discord. And it's worth noting that there was no formal effort to compile and preserve the Hadith like there was for the Quran during the reign of the first four Caliphs. And this shows that if they genuinely thought that the Sunnah of the Prophet, his Hadith, his traditions uh, were essential for the religion, that they would have made a formal effort to preserve it. But they actually did the opposite. They made an active effort to stop the spread of hadith. So it mentions on page 24, this narration that Abu Bakr, the first caliph, is reported to have collected 500 hadith, which, which he later destroyed because he suspected that it contained some hadith related by unreliable people. This is on page 24. And here's the supposed hadith. Again, I'm pulling this from Imam Zabi. It says, Hazrat Aisha said that my father, Hazrat Abu Bakr, had collected a hadith of the messenger. And this, these were about 500 in number. Then one night, I saw that my father was tossing and turning in his bed. I asked him, are you restless because of some physical ailment or has some news reached you regarding which you are feeling disturbed? My father did not reply to this. When the morning came, he said, Daughter, bring me those hadith which are with you. Then he called for some fire and burnt them. Now this becomes very problematic to those who are propagating hadith. That Why is it that Abu Bakr had such a uh, reservation about the hadith he supposedly heard himself that he had in his possession that he was willing to burn them rather than have them spread in the off chance that he misunderstood something or it's going to be interpreted in the wrong way. And that was the first caliph, uh, Abu Bakr, and the second caliph, Omar, uh, he was actually more strict in stopping the spreading of hadith. And we have this uh, statement, this is in page one, that it's in reference to, uh, to uh, Omar. It says, he asked his companions not to narrate too many hadiths. And we see this in the book of Tabari, where Umar said to his people, he said, be exclusively devoted to the Quran and diminish the annotations of Muhammad. 
So here he's telling the people, stop citing Muhammad to focus on the book of God, the Quran. And we see Umar's apprehension towards a hadith in a narration from Bukhari. This is Bukhari 114. It says, Ibn Abbas said, when the ailment of the prophet became worse, he said, bring for me a paper and I will write for you a statement after which you will not go astray. But Umar said, the prophet is seriously ill and we have got Allah's book with us and that is sufficient for us. So is that not strange that the closest companion to the prophet is stating that, hey, we have the Quran and it's sufficient for us when the prophet is telling them, give me a piece of paper, I'll write for you a statement by which you will not go astray. Again, this shows that the emphasis of the earliest Muslims, the quote-unquote rightly guided Khalifas, was that they needed to focus on the Quran alone, not to be caught up in the supposed sayings of the Prophet, even from something that was coming from him directly, apparently at their time, that he's saying that the Quran is sufficient for us. And this is carried out, we see in his, the history of Umar, that he even briefly imprisoned Ibn Masud, Abdul Darada, and uh, Abu Masud al-Ansari because they related too many traditions. And I was able to find this narration where it says, during the Caliphate of Umar, Hadith had started appearing in abundance. He made people promise to bring all these Hadith to him. As ordered, the people brought their collections of Hadith to him, and then he gave the command for these to be burnt. So he's telling the people, hey, don't just, you know, stop narrating Hadith. He's taking their supposed collections and he's burning them. Again, this is something you do to the work that you don't want to spread. You don't want people focusing on. Now, the book that I referenced, the Hadith literature, right? It's not going into the depth on these topics. I'm extracting these from other sources, but it's citing them. It's acknowledging that these are some of the narratives that are floating around. Now, the, the, the book just hand waves these things. Oh, nothing to see here and just keeps moving on. But it's worth emphasizing some of these points. Like one of the other aspects that it brings up is how few of the supposed companions actually narrated Hadith. So a challenge with determining exactly what percent of the uh, companions uh, narrated Hadith, you, you need a couple data points. Really, you need two. One, you need a list of all the companions, right, that supposedly narrated Hadith and how many Hadith they, they uh, narrated. And the book provides that. And secondly, you need to know exactly how many companions there are because the definition of a Sahaba, uh, it varies from person to person. So on the lower bound, when the Prophet supposedly did his farewell sermon, they, they say that there was about 40,000 people listening to him give this speech. Now, if that's the case, you can say that's the lower bound because not obviously every uh, Muslim, everyone who got in contact was at that uh, uh, farewell sermon, but we can say, okay, that's the lower bound. On the upper bound, uh, Al-Razi estimates that over 100,000 people uh, witnessed the Prophet. So if that's the case, we can say, okay, that's the upper bound. So the lower bound will say there's possibly 40,000 uh, people who actually heard the Prophet speak. And on the upper bound, we can say it's 100,000. So from that, we can calculate what percent of the companions actually narrated Hadith. And what we find is if we use uh, the uh, 40,000 number, that 97.42% of uh, Sahaba narrated zero Hadith. And on the upper band, it's close to 99% of the Sahaba, 99% of the people who were in the presence of the Prophet 
narrated zero hadith. Now, out of that remaining, right, the vast majority, so this is the list, they say 500 people narrated one hadith, 132 people narrated two hadith, 80 people narrated three hadith. And the number of people who supposedly narrated more than 20 hadith is only 123 people. And if you look at that distribution, what you realize is that it's heavily weighted towards just this supposed handful of people. So out of all the individuals who saw were in the presence of the prophet, heard him speak, we're talking about 0.12% of people actually narrated more than 20 of the hadith. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the individual who uh, narrated way more hadith than anyone else, it's one guy, we did a whole episode on him, Abu Huraira. He supposedly has 5,374 hadith. And he lived with the prophet no more than about a, a year and a half to three years. And that's it. And compare him to all the other individuals. Now, this is where it gets interesting. He narrated 10 times more hadith than Umar. He narrated 10 times more hadith than Ali. He narrated roughly 40 times more hadith than Abu Bakr and Uthman. And these are considered the closest companions. So to put this in perspective, on pages 2 and 24, it, it, it identifies that Umar lived at a distance from the Prophet of Medina, and him and someone else from the Ansar, they would take turns staying with the Prophet to uh, uh, hear all the, and it varies on the uh, translation, the revelation. Some people interpret that to just mean the Quran. Other people obviously interpret that to mean the Hadith. And they would share it with each other. So this individual had accounts of the Prophet during his, pretty much his entire prophethood. And he only had 537 Hadith attributed to him. Roughly 10% of what was attributed to Abu Huraira. Now, this doesn't make any sense. How is it possible this one individual who only sp spent this brief moment of time with the Prophet has so many more narrations and statements and actions and inactions of the Prophet than his closest companions? Now, what else is interesting is the fifth most prolific uh, uh, narrator of Hadith is an individual by the name of Ibn Abbas. And we see that on uh, page one, it says that Ibn Abbas is reported to have related only two or three hadiths in a month. And then in an, uh, on page 21, it says Ibn Hajar uh, refers to the assertion that Ibn Abbas related only four or ten traditions from the Prophet. But then it counters this and says, well, that can't be true because, you know, we have these uh, 1660 uh, narrations attributed to him. So this is a common criticism uh, from Western scholarship against uh, you know, the following of these hadith, these prolific narrators, that most likely these are being falsely attributed to these people because they know that they're quote-unquote credible. Now, some people, again, they, they try to reconcile this. They say, oh, no, no, he only has, you know, this many narrations from himself that he witnessed, but he's actually narrating for other companions that he heard from. Well, if that's the case, he should be citing his sources. But the fact that he doesn't, again, this becomes problematic. Uh, the historian Patricia Crone states the following regarding Ibn Abbas. So on page 33, it says his collection, so this is in regards to Ibn Hanbal, it contains some 30,000, again, including repetitions of Ibn Hanbal's traditions. And it says 1,710, including repetitions, are transmitted by the companion Ibn Abbas. Yet less than 50 years earlier, one scholar had estimated that Ibn Abbas had only heard nine traditions from the Prophet, while another thought 
that the correct figure might be 10. If Ibn Abbas had heard 10 traditions from the Prophet in the year around 800, but over a thousand by about 850, how many had he heard in 700 or 632? Even if we accept that the 10 of Ibn Abbas traditions are authentic, how do we identify them in the pool of 1710? So the problem here is the earlier sources claim that Ibn Abbas had much fewer, we're talking orders of magnitude, fewer narrations. But later generations amplified this number and now they're attributing, you know, 1660 uh, hadith traditions to Ibn Abbas. Again, the math just does not add up. Now let's move on to the next thing. This is about the, the squabbles and quarrels that the companions had regarding hadith. For instance, many companions refuse to narrate hadith because of the statement that they attribute to the Prophet that anyone who tells a lie about me, that they will have their seat in hell, that they were concerned that if it gets misconstrued or they misheard something that the Prophet said or did, that this could be guaranteeing their spot in hell. So on page 25, it reads, Despite this, however, there are many traditions which forbid the writing down of any scriptural material other than the Quran. And there's this reference from the Misnad of Imam uh, Ahmad uh, that the Sahaba declared, We people used to write down whatever we used to hear from Rasulullah. Then one day Rasulullah appeared before us and inquired, What is it that you have been writing? We replied, Whatever we hear from you. We put it down in writing. Then he replied, What, another book alongside Allah's book? Then he said, Keep the book of Allah, clean and pure, keep it untainted from any types of doubts and ambiguities. The Sahaba said, then whatever we had written, we collected it all in an open space and burnt it. So if we go back to page 25, it says, and many other companions and successors are reported to have disliked and discouraged the writing of Hadith. In particular, there are the names of Ali ibn Masud, ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Umar, and it continues. So from this, it looks like the earliest companions, at a minimum, if they told people not to, to spread hadith, that they had a particular disdain about writing hadith. And if we look at the uh, history of the manuscripts of hadith, this actually corresponds. Now, this is a big challenge for propagators of hadith, that if you look at all the manuscripts of hadith, that none of them exist. Like you would think that the hadith corpus is, you know, a thousand times larger than the Quran, that we should have thousands more manuscripts of hadith as we do the Quran. But we do not have a single manuscript of hadith for the first hundred years. The first manuscript we have is one page of the Mawata of Imam Malik, just one page. But most of the manuscripts you find come hundreds of years later. Uh, for instance, even Bukhari, uh, the earliest manuscript of Bukhari that we have is from the year 407 uh, after Hijra. And this is only books 65 through 69, with the book uh, 65 being partial. The first actual complete manuscript of Bukhari we have is found from being 550 years after the death of the Prophet. Again, this all shows that Hadith was not a major focus for the earliest Muslims. This is a secondary fabrication that came hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet. And again, this is not what we see with the Quran. We have pretty much the entire intact Quran in the first century Hijra. Uh, in addition, we have manuscripts 
that are carbon dated to the life of the prophet and some nearly complete manuscripts, we're talking about only, I think there's like a couple dozen verses missing, uh, are dated to the reign of Uthman. So all throughout history, we have the Quranic manuscript. But again, when it comes to the Hadith, hundreds of years, nothing. You know, we have one folio from Imam Malik, 107 years after the death of the Prophet. And the first, again, complete manuscript the Bukhari was 550 years after the death of the Prophet. And here's another a narration I was able to find regarding Ali. It says, uh, uh, Abdullah bin Yasser says that Ali once said in his khutbah that I bid every person who has any written hadith that on return from here, he should destroy it because previous nations were destroyed for this very reason because they followed the narrations of their scholars and left Allah's book. Now, irrespective if he said this or not, it doesn't matter. This actually corresponds with what the Quran says. In chapter 9, verse 31 of the Quran says, they have set up their religious leaders and scholars as lords beside God. Now, these people today, they uphold as Bukhari and Muslim and Termidi and Abu Dawood as lords beside God. They have God's pristine book. It's perfect. It's fully detailed. It came directly from the prophet himself. And then they have these secondary sources that they uphold as a source beside God's book. Just like God has no partners, God's book has no partners. Now, if something is written in God's book, we know definitively this came from God. But this is not the case when it comes to Bukhari, Termidi, Muslim. These individuals are fallible. And the typical argument uh, upholders of Hadith give when pressed on these facts is they say if the Isnad is sound, the chain of narrators is sound, then it doesn't matter what the content is. Now, what's interesting is when it comes to Bukhari, uh, this is in page 63, it says, because Bukhari nowhere mentions what canons of criticism he applied to the traditions to test their genuineness or tells us why he compiled the book, many later scholars have tried to infer these things from the text itself. So the criticism against Bukhari is that he's telling us his chain of narrators are sound, that he had the stringent you know, criteria, but he doesn't provide the biographical work he did to verify the trustworthiness of his chain of narrators. And apparently he, he wrote a book where he went through this, but it, it's not in existence, so we can't say it's there. And it wasn't until, again, hundreds of years later that scholars started writing biographical dictionaries. And none of these books existed until the third century. So imagine being three centuries deep and now trying to understand the trustworthiness of these supposed people. I mean, realistically, how much do you have to work off? So this becomes incredibly problematic. And we're just supposed to trust that, no, because Sahih Bukhari vetted all these, that we're just supposed to trust it. And again, this is the problem. You have hundreds of years go by. Now you have people writing these uh, biographies of these individuals who lived in these remote locations and trying to judge their trustworthiness. Now we can claim, hey, they, they went through such diligence. But can you imagine risking your salvation for all of eternity on these Chinese whispers, these assumptions? Now in the same uh, page, it, it gives this reference. It says, Al-Hakim gives several examples of forged and weak hadith having sound isnads. Al-Suyuti remarks that such hadith are encountered frequently. 
This destroys their entire argument that if the isnad is sound, then you have to accept the, the uh, contents of the hadith. Because it's saying that even among the forged hadith, there are those that have sound uh, isnads. And Suyuti is saying that they encounter these frequently. So the other principle is that the hadith should not contradict the Quran. So in page 113, it reads, According to the traditionist, even if the isnad is completely without fault, the text should still be analyzed before the genuineness of its attribution can be established. According to well-known principle, if you encounter a hadith contrary to reason or to what has been established as correctly reported or against the accepted principles, then you should know that it is forged. Yet consistently we see in the hadith literature that it's contradicting the Quran. The Quran says that there's four dietary prohibitions. You consult the hadith, you have a list of 40 dietary prohibitions. The Quran says that the ablution is four steps. You consult the hadith, it tells you that it's 8, 10, 11, 12 steps. The Quran tells us that the punishment for a married individual who commits adultery is a hundred lashes, but you consult the hadith and they say it's stoning to death. And all these other extraneous laws that if someone is uh, drunk twice going to their salat that they could be potentially executed. All this nonsense in the hadith corpus. And the book cites specific hadith from Bukhari that individuals find problematic. One regarding Adam's height, that it says when God created Adam, he was 60 cubits tall and every human being since the creation of Adam has gotten progressively shorter. Because again, we can go and check the remains of ancient human beings and we see that this pattern does not add up. That Adam was not 60 cubits and human beings have not been getting progressively shorter. Uh, the other one, it's uh, in Bukhari, that Abraham will pray to God on doomsday, saying, O Lord, thou hast promised me that thou wilt not humiliate me on the day of judgment. So this is considered a fabrication, and that most of the traditions concerning the advent of the Dajjal and the Mahdi towards the end of time are declared to, by the traditionists to be spurious, are included in the forged works. So it's saying that, again, these concepts should not be taken seriously, but you find these replete in the Sita, in the uh, Hadith corpus. Now, this brings us to the other point, the fact that there was a mass fabrication of Hadith. So in page 33, it talks about the heretics. Now, these are individuals who have a whole history of fabricating thousands of Hadith. So it reads, it says, the heretics remarked, uh, Hamad ibn Zayd have invented 14,000 traditions in the name of the Prophet. To name only a few, one can cite Abdul Al-Karim ibn Abil Awja, Bayan ibn Saman, and Muhammad ibn Sayyid, the first of whom alone had forged some 4,000 traditions in the name of the Prophet of Islam. Another heretic, who is actually caught, sentenced, and executed by the order of Harun al-Rashid, is said to have confessed to forgery of a thousand hadith. And it continues on the same page regarding the political and tribal motivations some of these forgers had. And it lists uh, individuals who forged thousands of hadith to support their doctrine, their ideology, their tribe, their cause. And it just goes to show the, the environment that this hadith corpus was pulled out of. I mean, consider that uh, uh, Ibn Hanbal supposedly went through some 750,000 to a million hadith uh, that, uh, and only selected from that 30,000 uh, traditions. Uh, uh, Bukhari went through some 600,000 traditions. 
and selected some 5,000 from that if you remove the repetitions. Now, this goes to show that the vast majority of hadith in circulation were not trustworthy. Now, regarding specifically Ibn Hanbal, I mean, he was collecting anything he can get his hands on, and he was only removing things that he said were complete forgeries. So anything he could find, he basically was collecting. So out of a sea of 750,000 narrations that he supposedly went through, right, or potentially a million, he only kept 30,000. And we know for a fact that inside this 30,000, there are false attributions. There are uh, uh, forgeries. There's all kinds of nonsense that it's made its way into these books. And this is acknowledged by scholars. So these are coming from heretics and individuals who had a specific uh, you know, doctrine or tribe or justification. What's interesting is on page 35, it says, but perhaps the most dangerous type of Hadith forgers came from the ranks of the devout traditionists themselves. Nu ibn Abi Maryam, who had studied theology with scholars of great repute, was known as Al-Jami on account of his vast and varied learning. He acted as a judge at Merv during the reign of Al-Mansur, he related traditions describing the virtues of the various chapters of the Quran, but when he was pressed for the authorities from whom he had received these traditions, he confessed that he had forged them for the sake of God and to attract people to his book. So here is a case of someone, an outstanding Muslim of high esteem, being caught red-handed, fabricating large numbers of hadith. Aban ibn Abi Ayash, who was one of the most godly people of his time, was severely censored by Shuba ibn al-Hajjaj and more than 1,500 traditions narrated by him on the authority of Anas were found to have no foundation. Ahmad ibn Muhammad al-Bahili was generally venerated for his piety, but when Abu Dawood looked into 400 traditions which were related by him, he found that they were all forged. Ahmad himself confessed to having forged traditions in order to make the hearts of the people tender and soft. Solomon ibn Amr was a contemporary of ibn Hanbal and would fast by day and offer prayers by night, outdoing his, this many of his contemporaries. But he is characterized nonetheless by the critics as a liar and forger of traditions. Wab ibn Hafs was generally regarded as a virtuous Muslim. His asceticism was so acute that it is said that for every 20 years he did not speak to anyone. Yet nonetheless he did not hesitate to forge traditions. These and many other well-intentioned and outwardly pious Muslims, and then he gives a list of them, held that it was permissible to forge traditions in order to attract people to the good deeds and warn them against evil. And then it continues listing the tens of thousands of hadith that were forged in the names of various companions. And this is just from what we know. This is what was uncovered. These people were held accountable. And to contemplate, you know, what is their probability that they got this 100% right? that they didn't include forged and fabricated hadith inside their quote-unquote Sahih compilations. Recently, I was reading about Muhammad Tawfiq Siddiqui, who was an Egyptian Muslim and physician who argued against the authenticity of hadith. And his arguments are very sound. It says that 
nothing of the hadith was recorded until after enough time had elapsed to allow the infiltration of numerous absurd or corrupt traditions. And that God has allowed this because the sunnah of Muhammad as a whole was only meant for the Arabs of the Prophet's time, as only the Quran was necessary for Islam. Siddiqui concluded that the sunnah of Muhammad was temporary in a provisional law, not divine revelation wahi meant for all of humanity. Muhammad Tawfiq Siddiqui wrote in an article, What is obligatory for man does not go beyond God's book. If anything other than the Quran had been necessary for religion, the Prophet would have commanded its registration in writing and God would have guaranteed its preservation. When we read God's book, the Quran, it consistently says that our only source of law is to be the Quran, that we should have no other hadith after it, that this is the only book we're responsible for upholding for religious salvation, that if we uphold some other laws other than what God has clarified in his scripture, we will be setting up partners next to God. And this is exactly what people have done hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet. The history of the earliest Muslims showed that Hadith was not a cornerstone of their religion. The earliest Khalifs made a deliberate effort to stop the spread of Hadith to try to get people to focus on the Quran alone. The vast majority of the Sahaba of the Prophet narrated zero Hadith. Nearly 99% of them narrated nothing. And even if we look at what is supposedly attributed to these people, the math doesn't add up. How is it possible that one individual who's known as the father of a kitten has 5,730 narrations attributed to him when the closest companions only have a fraction of that and they spent so much of their years and days with the prophet? None of this adds up. Then, in addition, we see that these supposed Sahi narrations, they were compiled hundreds of years after the death of the prophet. That the, the individuals that they're claiming are trustworthy, this information was not available until hundreds of years after that. How the heck were they supposed to know that these individuals were trustworthy when we have a rich history showing that the vast majority of hadith in circulation were fabrications? And these were not just fabricated by heretics. These are fabricated by individuals who are outstanding citizens in the eyes of the Muslims. So if we can't determine the trustworthiness of the individual and the trustworthiness of the contents of that, and for all intents and purposes, we see in the record that Hadith, the manuscripts of them, are completely absent for hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet, this should allow us to realize that for the, if you want to follow the path of God, you want to follow the path of the Messenger, the only way we can do that is through the Quran alone and not through this conjecture that was created hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet by people who chose to abandon the Quran. And this is the testimony of the Prophet on the day of resurrection says, my people have discarded this Quran. Let's not make that mistake. Let's follow the Quran alone. All this gives us confidence that the book we have, this is our only source of religious law. It's our only path to salvation. That if you want to love the Prophet, you want to follow the Prophet, the way we do that is by upholding the Quran alone. God willing, we're going to end there. 
If you guys want to get in touch, please join us on our Discord server. We got a thriving community, a lot of good discussion. We have Quran studies, we have recitation, we have meditation sessions, and we would love to have like-minded individuals on the server. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to quranstudyapp.com website. And if you want to get notes for today's talk and other discussions, check out the Quran talk blog. And until next time, peace and God bless.